John apologized to us after watching that movie. He's like, I'm, I'm sorry for the male race. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah John. Uh, on behalf of all He, uh, he apologized all to us. <laughs> I get in an email like, oh, what's your height? Sorry. <laughs> That's awesome. Welcome to Bitch Talk. I'm Aaron Lim. This is Ange, a.k.a. Captain Party. And I'm producer Shar. And over the last 10 years, we've been elevating marginalized voices through interviews and events. Sometimes over a glass of whiskey. Welcome to day seven of our Sundance and Slamdance Film Festival coverage. Today, we're bringing you documentaries on women from Sundance. We have Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields, with returning director Lana Wilson. The Disappearance of Cher Height with returning director Nicole Noonan, and Going to Mars, The Nikki Giovanni Project, which won the Sundance Grand Jury Documentary Award. A big thank you to 48 Hills and our listeners for voting us Best of the Bay Best Podcast. And now, on with the show. We are on the Festival Daily Buzz. My name is John Wildman. I'm the editor-in-chief of FilmsGoneWild.com. Here with the Bitch Talk team, Angela Tabora and Aaron Lim. And this segment, we are going to be talking about the film Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields. It's a Sundance documentary. And we have Lana Wilson. She's the director. Returning us as a sequel because we talked to her about Miss Americana uh, before. So welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Um, Let's start us off. Uh, All right. Audience has not seen the film as yet. Introduce them to the film. Yeah. Pretty Baby Brooke Shields is the story of Brooke Shields, but it's also a bigger story of how women and girls are represented in our culture. So it's it's about a girl who's groomed to be an object, and it's an exploration of what it takes for a woman to find her own agency and voice. Um, when I was watching the, f- the film or the episodic, um, I was a little bit embarrassed knowing way too much about Brooke Shields. <laughs> like while I was watching, like, oh, yep, yep. I remember that. I remember that. I wonder if they're going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Did you um, encounter that for yourself when you started working on this film or with others while you're starting to work on this film? Yeah. You know, I knew who she was, of course. I knew she was very beautiful and very famous and ubiquitous, but I didn't really know what I knew her from. You know, I mean, I had vague sense of, I remember seeing Blue Lagoon at some point, but I more remember seeing the VHS Blue Lagoon box at Blockbuster, you know, and I remember suddenly Susan. And But I, I didn't know a lot of this stuff. No, I think I was coming at it maybe more fresh than a lot of people would. So a lot of this was was new to me. We see with these child stars, Drew Barrymore, in the film as well, um, that they learn how to compartmentalize mm-hmm. these feelings as a survival tactic, mm-hmm. which is not an easy thing to stop, to overcome. Um, so did you get a sense that through through this film, it sort of helped Brooke kind of face certain demons that mm-hmm. she had kind of, um, you know, hidden within herself or any new breakthroughs? Absolutely. I think this was a bit of a processing tool for her. Um, a lot of this stuff she had talked about before, but not at such length and at such depth, something she hadn't talked about before. Like she speaks about being sexually assaulted for the first time mm-hmm. here. And I, I do think she was just at a moment in her life that felt like a change moment to her. Her oldest daughter just went to college and she is at this kind of taking stock of and reevaluating period. And then she also, I think her career is so crazy in a lot of ways, you know, it's like she's 
doing Circus of the Stars, doing acrobatic <laughs> routines with poodles. She's doing very <laughs> serious projects. She was on Broadway. She's doing. And I think when she looks back at it, she almost compartmentalizes not only some of these formative and sometimes traumatic experiences she had, but also it's like her whole career is in these different compartments. And I think she also didn't know, like, what is the thread running through all this? Like, what, is, what does this mean that up to? Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting for me was looking at all of that and looking for what is the thread running through it that reflects Brooke's evolution as a person over decades. And so, you know, she had no creative involvement. So I made it, showed it to her. It was very overwhelming and intense and emotional, but I, I do think it was a kind of step in processing and um, specifically with the sexual assault. I think it is a bit of a weight off her shoulders. I can't speak for her, but I've just noticed and even just the last couple of days, she seems like really stepping into her own even more. And I do think it was a great experience to have this all together and also all in a bigger context. So it wasn't just her personal story and her alone, but seeing it is her experience going on a journey with her, but it's also this vessel for many bigger conversations because hopefully so many other people can see themselves in her experience. There's an interesting through line between the two films of these two women that seemingly, no matter what the hell they do in, in amazing creative lives and careers, they never get the credit mm. for how remarkable they both mm-hmm, are. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and certainly in Brooke's case, uh, you know, I'm watching this, and of course, I am absolutely familiar with everything because I'm, you know, same age, living in the same period of time, right? And you know, and and again, and 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 kind of getting angry on her behalf, going, Jesus Christ, what did she have to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's wonderful that that it's laid out in such a a, 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 a way that it really does put into context what she was capable of and what she mm-hmm. did achieve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The one question I have that, that, that on a filmmaking level mm-hmm. that 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 because there's so much about, which again is well documented, her relationship with her mother, mm-hmm. um, but nobody was seeing behind the mm-hmm. closed doors. Nobody mm-hmm. was seeing that, and 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 so much of that is illuminated um, through this. Yeah. But you know, again, this is a person whose life was 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 run by studios and, and 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 managers and agents and publicists or what have you um so and and it, and it was so controlled and her mother mm-hmm. um how difficult was it and did it take a few different tries to for her to allow you to get into those aspects yeah i think that was the hardest part for her was the relationship with her mother brooke's relationship with her mother is the most important relationship in her life. And it's a big part of the film. And that was the relationship she was the most um, worried about. Like, how would it be represented in this documentary from the get-go? And she told me that. I remember it was like a couple of weeks after we first met. Um, she called me and was just telling her, I just want you to know my my biggest fear is that my mother will be vilified. And I think part of that is that, you know, she still is the adult child of an alcoholic and is so protective of her mother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I told her I... I understand that. And my goal is to represent her mother in a really complicated way because that's what I think it was. So her mother did have a lot of amazing qualities to her and there was a lot of love in their relationship, but her mother's behavior was also emotionally abusive. And there were a lot of problems that came out of that. And it was the biggest challenge in Brooke's life was being the child of an alcoholic. So um, I think one thing, that I was really clear about it from the beginning is that I did see that her mother was blamed for so much of Brooke's early sexualization. 
And that seemed really unfair to me. That seemed like a misogynistic focus of the culture on condemning the mother when they're actually directors, writers, commercial makers, a huge media system, but also the culture at large who is actually responsible for this. I think that Terry and Brooke were basically both reacting to a really screwed up misogynistic system in their own ways. So that's what I saw. And so, you know, I did tell Brooke that this is going to be as much about the big culture as it is about you personally. And I think that in that, we will see that your mother is not the villain here. So, um, yeah, when it, that was the conversation we had early on. And then those are my favorite parts of the film, actually, are the parts mm -hmm. with Brooke and Terry. I was so struck looking at the archival mm -hmm. material because they did interviews together, mm -hmm. oddly, for yes. decades. Yes. That you could, When I first started looking at the material and I would see things like, you know, Brooke and her mom and Barbara Walter, Walters and Barbara Walters saying, I see, I know you've quit drinking, Terry. Isn't that great? And you just see these look, this look on Brooke's face. Mm -hmm. I just loved how much you could see in these reactions and the tension. Yeah, the the difficulty, but also the love. I found it so relatable. We all have complicated relationships with our mothers and our parents. And I do think the mother-daughter relationship has extra scrutiny applied to it. So I, I loved all of that. But then at the end, I remember when I showed it to Brooke, part of what was kind of the most emotional and hard for her to watch is that she had this big takeaway of, yeah, you know, my mom didn't have enough self-worth, self-esteem to feel that she could do things. You know, she kind of latched onto my extraordinary daughter. Mm -hmm. And that was something that Brooke saw a big picture in the documentary that I think is there. This is heartbreaking in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, Terry had a really hard childhood, did not have a lot of love in her life. And so part of her being like, I have this extraordinary daughter, what's sad about it is that it's a kind of erasure of herself. Right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, and it also seems, did you do throughout the, the course of filmmaking, uh, how many sit downs did you do with Brooke? Yeah. Because, you know, because because we're watching, we're going, well, it's a different hairstyle. And so I'm watching yeah. that and, and going, well, of course that happens yeah. over the course where you go, oh, I, I need to get some more yeah. information on this. Yeah. Yeah. But again, in a documentary like this, where you are really working with your subject yeah. in, in a great way, yeah. how were how you managing that coordination yeah. and getting those okays? Yeah. Well, we started off with doing uh, either three or four days of interview with Brooke, just a single sit down interview with the same place every day. It was three days. So that was at the very beginning. Then we did a pickup day at the very end. Mm -hmm. And also maybe two thirds of the way through, I did this like a verite scene of her talking to um, Ali Wentworth, who's the executive producer, mm -hmm. in a conversational way, just because, you know, a chance at getting at some of the same things, but in this more conversational setting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, it's just like, well, what works best? Like sometimes it is amazing to have an interview in a a box and you come into this studio setup and it's a quiet, intense place with a lot of lights and a lot of mm -hmm. stuff. I, to me, there's something really powerful about that sometimes because you come in and you're like, this is a big deal. And there's no one there who you know. And, and so it's a very particular feeling. And most of what we're using is from that. But then there's also a little something about her sitting with her friend who she's known for a long time on a sofa. We're filming it handheld with no one else or me and one other person, our cinematographer, one of the additional DPs, Steve Mang, filmed that. And that's also a totally different feeling. So I like, I wanted to be able to draw from both of those worlds. Yeah. I love how the relationship between the mother and the daughter comes full circle at mm. the end when we see Brooke 
just having a dinner scene with her daughters. It was really impactful. And, and like I said, comes, comes full circle seeing her Mm. in, in the mother position Mm -hmm, now. mm -hmm. Um, can you talk about, her allowing her daughters to be in this film mm-hmm. and was she protective of them mm-hmm. knowing mm-hmm. what she's been through? Yeah. Yeah, it was, we basically just filmed, you know, this film is predominantly archival and interviews. And then we only filmed two or three days of Verite at the very end, just to give the sense of, give people the chance to see Brooke now. So we have a little of that at the beginning, mm-hmm. a little bit at the end. It's basically a bookending thing, including this dinner with her daughters. One of my favorite scenes in the film. So basically that was just filming, we were filming a day in the life with Brooke and it was just like, I didn't know what would come out of it. You know, it was just like, it would be nice to see you with your daughters now because your relationship with your mother was so important. And because becoming a parent was such a huge experience for Brooke, obviously, as the film covers. So I don't know. I just asked and she was like, sure. Yeah, they're all game. We'll have dinner tonight. There was no planning for it. You know, we basically we went into the room and I just said, have you ever seen any of your mom's movies? And we started rolling <laughs> and then all this stuff happened and came out. And I think it was so surprising to me and to Brooke because Brooke had never talked with her daughters about her work. She mm-hmm. genuinely didn't know if they had seen Pretty Baby or anything. And that's what's so fascinating about documentary filmmaking is that most of my previous films were verite. And, you know, people describe that as fly on the wall type of filming. I never actually feel like a fly on the wall. You know, I'm always very aware of my presence and, your camera is never invisible. But what's cool is that sometimes the fact that there's a camera there can allow the opportunity for conversations between people that might not happen otherwise. Mm -hmm. And this was one of those things where, you know, I think Brooke was really surprised by it. I was so impressed by her daughter's intelligence Mm -hmm. and points of view. And I think for, so then we just filmed it. It was like an hour and a half. And I was just like, wow, like this is fascinating and Mm -hmm. so smart. But the other thing that was interesting to me about it is that I had never met Terry. Obviously, she's dead. Mm -hmm. But clearly, Terry and Brooke had a relationship where Brooke was not freely sharing her opinion with her mother. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't saying, no, you're wrong. You know, I don't want to do it. That was not at all the case. And now here is Brooke having created this environment in her family where her daughters can say whatever they want and they're not afraid and they can disagree and push back against each other, Mm -hmm. but in a respectful, loving way. And so I was almost, it was less about the content, but more about that dynamic. I loved watching. I thought it would be so moving to end the film with that Mm -hmm. because we felt Brooke's experience with her mom and her journey. And now here we are. So exactly. It gave me hope for the future. I'll just say that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and also I have to say, and also the relationship with her husband now. Yeah. And in that scene in particular, yeah. where he clearly is taking the back seat yeah. <laughs> to a room of powerful women, yes. you know, to you two of which you are daughters. And yeah. that, based on the film that we've just seen, we go, well, that's also a happy yes. result. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, after, you know, after Andre Agassi, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you, know, yes. and, and, you know, you go, oh, good. Yeah, we're, we're, and it is, it's, it's finally a documentary like this where, again, we know you know, things that happen, whatever, mm-hmm. but we don't fully know the journey mm-hmm. and we don't fully know where they're at mm-hmm. and, and whatever. And so to be able to bring it to that point where you go, oh, well, look at that. Mm-hmm. Some, sometimes it can wind up okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. it really, so it, it just, it was, it was surprising in all the best ways, mm-hmm. I, I have to tell you. Oh, uh, thank you. Uh, pretty Baby, Brooke Shields. Um, screening at Sundance, uh, it's a really, really nice uh, look at a life that you think you know, but mm-hmm. maybe you don't know so much. Um, and we've been talking with the director, Lana Wilson. It's been great talking to you about the film. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This episode is made possible by Anne Wang, Natalie Gamble, 
The Papa Lowdown Agency, The Friesen Family, Jenny Yang, Fleetwood, aka Nico, Melanie Pena, Lauren Lim, Catherine Tulio, Courtney Kita, Mila Blog, Anita Tabora Rodriguez, Arabella DeLuco, Chloe Jackman of Chloe Jackman Studios, Shauna Festi, Stephanie Walton, Lisa Shad, Antoinette Tabora, and Storied San Francisco. Thank you so much for donating, and a special shout out to the Slamdance Film Festival for providing us a recording home in Park City. We are on the Festival Daily Buzz. My name is John Wildman. I'm the editor-in-chief of FilmsGoneWild.com. And with me from Bitch Talk is Angela Tabora. And on this segment, we're going to talk about the Sundance documentary, The Disappearance of Shara Height. We have with us director-producer Nicole Noonan. She's returning because we've talked with her uh, before. And uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm really happy to be back here. Absolutely. All right. So we always start this off by having our filmmaker introduce the audience to the film. They haven't seen it as yet. Mm -hmm. So tell us about Disappearance of Cher Height. Okay. So The Disappearance of Cher Height is about Cher Height, who um, is a world-renowned sex researcher. And she made huge cultural um, waves when her book, The Height Report, came out in 19. 1976. It was one of the. It still is one of the best-selling books of all time, um, and it it dropped a bomb in our culture. And it's in its primary finding, which was that women do not orgasm primarily through intercourse, um, but they have no problem orgasming through masturbation most of the time. And this was not something that was uh, known or talked about or discussed, and or had really been proven in this way before. And she did it in a ra- radical, kind of almost grassroots organizing type of fashion by sending out surveys to try to match the population demographics to women all over the country and giving them the cloak of anonymity to write back anything in their heart about their intimate personal lives. And she asked them questions nobody had ever asked women. And so um, she, the Height Report was a chorus of voices that let women know that they weren't alone and portrayed a broad spectrum of sexuality and gave women the idea that they had a choice about how they wanted to experience their sex lives and um, and that they had control of their own bodies. And that became threatening to the patriarchy. So our film follows kind of the um, cultural impact of the book and the, and the cultural backlash to it that took place during the rise of the religious right and the conservative movement in the United States. Whew, no big deal. <laughs> um, yeah, one thing that was so hard about all the criticism and the controversy over her work was she really just cared passionately about people and wanted everybody to have a better time. Like yeah. she literally was telling men, help me help you. Like we could, you could really satisfy women and this is how, and men yeah. just weren't having it. Yeah. Um, so I, this interview that Share does with David Hasselhoff is a prime example. Um, can you talk about finding this archival footage? Because it was just gold. It just represented everything that was wrong with how men saw her work. Yeah, I mean, actually, that particular piece of archive footage um, came to our awareness pretty early on in our research. Um, a lot of the the you know tremendous amount of archive in the film took us a long time to find, but um, but that was on YouTube if you googled Share Height. But I don't think people are googling Share Height anymore, you know, because mm-hmm. many pe- many people have have forgotten, you know. Who well, she is, they her will message, now, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, but that but I agree that scene is completely. I mean, my job was on the floor when I saw that. It mm-hmm. says so much about our culture, you mm-hmm. know, and you're kind of simultaneously thinking like, oh my God, things were so funny back in the 70s at the same time as you're thinking like, 
things are still like this because she was having conversations back in the 70s that we're still not having in the media today. Right. You know, I'm happy to have this conversation with you, but she was going on morning shows and talking to major you know, news figures about clitoral stimulation and that I, that's not happening now, you know? So there's, mm -hmm. there's so many ways in which it almost feels like a regression, you mm -hmm. know, even as we are making progress in other areas. I mean, she's such a remarkable, enigmatic uh, creation that, you know, that, that, that uh, if you try to create a character out of whole cloth, you couldn't do better than share height. <laughs> um, so, so as a documentarian, it's like, man, talk about just having the world to, you know, in, in terms of a subject. Um, uh, I mean, she, she's uh, amazing in so many ways. And of course, there are a series of films this year where men are just lame. And, 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 and this, and this film there, there's, you know, as you say, there there are interview interviews after interviews where she is facing the fire and the ire of these men who cannot handle the idea that um, you know that uh, uh, that they're maybe not totally irrelevant, um, but they're certainly not as relevant as they thought they were. Um, what I would love for you to talk about, though, is that when you have such a richness of uh, of, of a personality to work with, well then. Then I think the challenge then comes to pairing it back to making a film that's not nine hours long and and also keeps us focused on a through line mm -hmm. throughout that. Can you talk about that process and the challenges um, to making sure that you stayed on track with kind of like your story timeline? Constructing the narrative. Yeah. Well, first off, I want to say, though, that I, I don't think Cher wanted men to think that they were less relevant. I th I just think she wanted them to know how it all worked so mm -hmm. that, you know, so that men and women, women in heterosexual relationships could come together and, and things could work better and everybody yeah. could have a good time, which is liberatory for men as well as women. So, um, I mean, I know you were just kind of saying what the men in the show say, exactly. say exactly. But, but, exactly. but I just wanted the audience to know. They literally do in, in, one of, in one of those, in one of yeah, those segments. Exactly. They literally say that to her. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in terms of constructing the narrative, I worked really closely with Eileen Meyer, our brilliant editor. Um, and, and Eileen and I both worked with Jim Lebrecht on Crip Camp. Um, and we, uh, we started cutting even as we were shooting. So really like we were making decisions about who to interview and, and what conversations to have and how, how is this all going to work as Eileen was exploring the footage and putting together kind of the visual language of the film. And what you said is really true. Cher, it's okay. Cher, because of the backlash and the way she was mistreated in the media and the way she was discredited and kind of turned into this, you know, person that she wasn't. Part of what happened was her full humanity was taken away from her. And that's partly how marginalized people, I think, are silenced in our society. Mm -hmm. So what we found as we started uncovering things was this really, like you say, like amazing, almost kind of like 1940s film noir heroine, right? Uh, yes. Like mm -hmm. a very complex, very strong woman, but who's like really uh, sexy, really feminine, really unafraid to own that completely unwilling to be put in a box and who had the most outrageously wonderful fashion sense of anyone alive <laughs> practically, you know, um, and loved color and loved music and loved art. So we tried to create a language for the film that was full of that. And in terms of the structure, we wanted to start with her work. We start kind of with the moment, really, the, the story starts at the moment that the book's about to come out. 
and she's full of everything she's accomplished. And she knows she's about to give this amazing gift to the world. And, um, and that was important to us because we didn't want to tell the, a film that started with her childhood and she had problems and we didn't want to pathologize her with a um, traditional biopic right. narrative structure. Mm -hmm. So we sort of start with that and don't come background of the childhood till the very end. Well, and I think we learned a lot of skills around this with Crip Camp, like bring people into her point of view, spend quite a long time doing that, right? Like the whole first 40 minutes of the film is really knowing her, knowing how she worked, knowing how she came to this, mm -hmm. understanding her personality, the world that she was in in New York of the 1970s at the time, and then go at letting the work get out in the world. And so you're really in her head as you start to see the cultural response to the work. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, and... and and on the topic of being in her head, the film is called The Disappearance of Cher Height. So the the criticism became so much that she couldn't even do her work anymore. So she leaves. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I'm like, this is why we can't have nice things, because <laughs> we just don't know how to take care of it. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about how important it was to not only show her strength, but her fragility as a leader in this movement? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I mean, I think, you know, you could have tried to make a film in which it seemed like she was this perfect heroine. And um, and that also seemed to not give her the full dignity of, of her full humanity. You mm -hmm. know, I thought so much about all the films I've seen about great writers and great men over time and their their complexity or their problems with drinking or their, you know, problems with it. And people can contain understanding the complexity of a human, of a, of a man and in the context of them having produced great work. But all too often, a woman is expected to not have any flaws. And if she does have flaws, they're used to sort of pathologize the work. So you see it in a different way and you, and you stop considering it to be great, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so we really felt challenged to try to you know, show that, sh that, that share, you know, was sensitive or would, you know, just sort of, um, talk about the aspects of her that, um, were a little bit challenging, but in the context of understanding here is this person doing this radical revolutionary thing who was so brave, you know, and so prescient mm -hmm. and, and trying to engage people in conversations that were still, so many decades later, really struggling to try to get people to have. Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes when um, I watch a documentary like this, I'm fascinated by, by reading between the lines of what people are saying about that that subject, or even like interview footage, like you know, like the 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 uh, the Mike Douglas show stuff is priceless because he was such a milk with toast host. And yet he was unnerved by her yeah. and, and she knew and she knew she, he, she, she was unnerving him uh, with the smoking on his show and everything. Um, <laughs> but the men that she had relationships with mm -hmm. um, that, that are interviewed in the show and aside from the information that they're delivering, there's very clearly this hold that she still has on each one of them. And, you, and that comes through very clearly. Um, I would, I, I, I'm, I'm curious uh throughout the exploration of her life um because you know obviously with a person like that there are all kinds of surprises but i would love for you to point out a single out maybe a couple of them that for you through through those interviews and and, and through things you found out you go well even i wasn't expecting this with sheer height I mean, I have to say that I, I, it was astounding when we looked at the um, looked at the sort of real estate records of her apartment that she bought on Fifth Avenue, this kind of like palace on Fifth mm. Avenue in New York when she got all the money 
from the Height Report that the people that lived in the building were Gene Simmons and Donna Summer, you know? <laughs> right. Oh, I forgot about that part. Yeah. Oh all God. of a sudden we were like, oh my God, that's amazing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we, we reached out to Gene Simmons and, um, and, uh, and that, that I have to say that the fact that they had a friendship really did surprise me. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, but it became a key to understanding something about her, which is that she was completely unjudgmental. You know, she, her, her friends and lovers, as you come to see in the film, were like of all stripes, you know? And, um, and she really, many people said to us that she did not see people in the categories that we placed them. She didn't see race. She didn't see age. She didn't see societal status. You know, she was just genuinely curious about people and trying to connect with something, you know, something deeper. So, um, so I think that was part of, the magic of her mm-hmm. that she almost emerges like this kind of space alien on our planet going, why are we doing things like this? You know, why are we acting mm-hmm. like this? Why are we um, restricting ourselves and confining ourselves? And why are we, especially for women, like why are we carrying around so much shame about, you know, just the, the, the essential beautiful nature of who we are. Mm-hmm. Well, that was her, her prophecy was don't become the stereotype. She was just, just do whatever you can to be whoever you are authentically and not become a stereotype. Yeah. I respected that. Yeah. Yeah. John apologized to us after watching that movie. He's like, I'm I'm sorry for the male race. Yeah. 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 yeah, John. On behalf of all all men. (laughs) I get in an email like, uh, what's your height? Sorry. (laughs) That's awesome. I bet. I mean, honestly, like, don't, didn't you feel like there were a lot of good men in the movie? Well, yes. I mean, and, and the, the, the ones, and oddly enough, that were in her life. Yeah. Uh, you know, there yeah. there are, but but it it is, and it's so, it it is so expected by this point, um, the fragility and the defensiveness, um, you know, of men in in, in that part, and so it, it's so frustrating to watch some of those interview clips. You know, mm-hmm. where the man and, and she's all by herself. Mm-hmm. She's like That's got four, two men on each side of her, yeah. and then they're and they're all going, "Oh well, this you know, this, you know, this, this wasn't a scientific study, or this wasn't this or whatever." And she's got no one else to 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 mm-hmm. team, you know to help her, mm-hmm. and and that which is a theme throughout the film, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, it, I mean, it really, uh, you know, it it it'll, it's it's you've done a wonderful job in I and and, and I think giving her a place and a document to go this is why this is what she was oh thank you thank you for saying that i have to say this is one of those films that you know whenever you know we come to sundance or slam dance or whatever you know we're always like asked by our friends like you know oh my god what have you seen what what do you like whatever and this is one that i've been telling everybody about um you know i just i just love the film to death and uh it it, it is great again the title of the film is the disappearance of share height screening at sundance and we've been talking with director producer nicole moon thank you for being on the show thank you for having me
49ers Treasure Mountain Inn at the top of Main Street in Park City. Talking to Sundance Films, Slamdance Films. I'm here with the Bitch Talk team, Angela Deborah and Aaron Lim. My name is John Wildman. I'm the editor-in-chief of FilmsGoneWild.com. The movie is Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni project, screening at Sundance. We have with us the directors, Michelle Stevenson and Joe Brewster. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, we, we, I mean, we love this movie. So, but we always start by having our filmmakers introduce our audience to it. They have not seen it. So which one of you wants to tell us about it? No, I did it last time. (laughs) (laughs) So let me be non-traditional. It's a film that we made because we had to make it. It was about a poet, Nikki Giovanni. Your audience may or may not know her, but uh, she's in... She's a poet who inspired me personally as a 16-year-old uh, listening to pop radio where she told us in South Central Los Angeles that we've always been around mm. and we could dream. And, and I never lost that message. So this is Nikki's story. She, she unfortunately, is um, having some health issues. She's losing her memory. So as much as she can remember, she takes us through the her past, uh, her present, and her future, mm-hmm. our future. Mm-hmm. And can you talk about um, the title itself, uh, specifically "Going to Mars"? Mm-hmm. "Going to Mars." The title comes from her poem called "Quilting the Black IP." We're going to Mars, and for what for us, it felt like a perfect meta- metaphor and an anchor for the film. Um, Nikki truly believes that Black people should lead the travel to space because of the Mid Atlantic. Uh, passage and how uh, black folks came out of Africa from an from an uh, unknown through an unknown, not knowing was going to, what was going to be on the other side and being able to keep their full humanity with what they encountered uh, in this hemisphere. And so for us, you know, we tried to make the film a little bit like a poem mm-hmm. and gone, gone to going to Mars felt like the perfect, you know, honoring of who she was, of who she is. So. so your audience is going to say, wow, this is heavy shit. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's funny. Oh, and it's, oh yes. Uh, and, and one of the poems that she, she someone stopped on the street, us on the, us on the street today and says, you know, there's a poem in this, uh, mm. Learning to Cry. I think you were talking to me personally because I cried all through this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It's laugh out loud funny. And I have to say, it took me forever to finish this film because I kept pausing it to write down her quotes because there's just so many of them and they're so good. But some of my favorite parts of the film are when you see her being interviewed and she's just like, I'm not going to answer that question. No, I don't feel like it. So I, I want to hear from your perspective. What was it like to interview you? You better be on top of your, you, to interview her and you better be on top of your game. Well, uh, the one that we, we opened the film with, I was on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. It did not feel good. <laughs> and I'm thinking, she's just basically no. And, and so, uh, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm supposed to be able to get in there. Mm-hmm. And I decided, no, I'm going to listen and keep my mouth shut and and my heart was racing because i knew this was the journey we were going to go Mm-hmm. through for the next four or five years mm. so in some ways this film is really the anti-biopic you know it's not the tradi- it's it, that's not what it's about 
For us, it's about seeing her lived experience and how it informs her work, how it informs the poetry, so we can relate both the lived experience and to what her poetry speaks to. And so she says it, and I think we we, we explored it. She says, I'm not going to answer that question. It's all in my poetry. Mm-hmm. My poetry tells my story. And it tells our story. I mean, we open with the film taking, you know, Janetta Cole saying, you know, you write for the collective. You write for all of us. We all relate to what you have to put down. And so it's true. It was in her poetry, you know. <laughs> and for us, it was really about honoring that. And, you know, there are certain aspects to someone's personal life that, you know, traditional documentary forms, you know, might want us to explore and explain. And and then we lose, but, but I feel, the this. art of the poetry. Excuse me. Let me finish. Thank you. <laughs> 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 anyway, I'll stop there. But that's so. So what we ended up doing is that constraint with her. We turned it into an opportunity. <laughs> this is a great bitch talk moment. Keep going, please. We love this. Well, think about it. Uh, she wasn't giving us a lot of interpersonal stuff. So we had to create a new film language. Mm-hmm. And so we used poetry and B-roll and archival disorder and music music. Mm -hmm. to take you emotionally through uh, her early childhood. Yeah, music and sound. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like uh, there's an aspect, there's an immersive aspect to the experience with this film where uh, there are certain sounds that connect to memory or connect to things that we immediately sort of evoke, whether historically or personally, that we sort of integrated, interwove into it so that you could feel it here and not just see it, you know, Mm -hmm. feel it in your heart. Well, she's, a, she's an amazing subject to do this with. And, and let's face it, I mean, documentary filmmaking has expanded uh, to the point where, um, you know, what we used to think of the traditional Maisel's Brothers or Dave Pennebaker, like, you know, style. Well, we've gone far beyond that to having things you go, is this actually a documentary? Or are we in an odd zone? You know, I, I, I thought a lot about uh, Moon Age Daydream, which came out last year. And, and I was like going, she is such the perfect subject, just like David Bowie was, to do an approach like this because of her poetry and because of of, of what she gives you imagery-wise to work off of. And then, of course, she's just, just such an amazing magnetic personality with, with whether the archival footage or the, or the, or the current footage of her to, to accent everything and underline it. It's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk about Moon Age Stage, uh, Moon, Moon Age Daydream? Well I, want, well, I want to stick with this one, but sure. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Oh. Our inspiration was yes. montage of Hat, yes. Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we, we mm. pitched this as Kurt, Kurt Cobain. And, uh, Meets I Am uh, Not Your Negro. Oh. oh. Yeah. oh. Yes. But, but, but when we saw Moon Age, we think, no, let's for, no, we, 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 we're a little bit uh, more accessible. And, mm. and so, because we need the emotion to keep the audience. Mm. And uh, so there's a lot of flash in here. But what we do is find a way to, emotion, uh, to emotionally resonate with our audience. So laughter is important for, for her. So we can be uh, impressionistic, but the folks I grew up with in South Central and and in um, and in Brooklyn, uh, they may need a little bit more, and that's the audience I want to reach. So there is emotion, emotion, emotion. That's uh, the first three most important things that we think about when we design a film. Hmm. Yeah, it is 
beautiful to see her mentality when she she's literally saying, I don't give a damn. Um, but w- by saying she did, she's not caring, she still does care. And she still makes such a huge impact, seemingly with with little effort, just by being who she is. So you did a really good job of showing. Sure, she's saying that. But really, her impact, there's no way to even tell how much impact she has on society. Yeah. Well, think about some of her poetry. I mean, the 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 scene in Philadelphia where she's talking to the kids about Rudolph. Mm. Oh, mm. God. Okay. <laughs> you want to say something? <laughs> yeah. Did I interrupt you? Oh, there you go. See, this is, this is progress. You just asked. You just asked. Michelle, this is progress. Come on. Come on. We're having a breakthrough moment right here. Breakthrough <laughs> moment. No, I just wanted to say that her saying I don't give a damn really is sort of allowing us to also not you know, mm-hmm. she serves as that role model, that goalpost for us to see, okay, there's a reference point here where I don't have to accept certain things. And it's really important. It's liberating. Mm-hmm. So she sort of is an expression of the journey of liberation and what it can look like, you know, for folks. So so I think as you're saying, her not saying that is not so much she doesn't give a damn, but the fact that she says that gives me permission to do that mm-hmm. as well. And we had that experience with the the part of the film that's a well that she says her a good cry and we had somebody who was watching i said oh so you her crying also is giving me permission to cry mm-hmm. throughout the film and you guys are sort of helping us through that journey too so i'd love to another um an interview a conversation that is a a, a central grounding feature is with her and james baldwin mm-hmm. which is amazing and you know and and, and as, as angela said that's one of those points where I was like stopping and starting and stopping mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, and uh, and I would love for the, the two of you to talk about it. again when, when you're building the structure of your film um, and, and and you're kind of building a timeline of events and you're and you're putting in footage, whatever. That's one of those things that I, I kind of looked at it as I was viewing it going, oh, I'll bet this was like like a baseline aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Is that the case? Well, baseline, we knew it was going in there because it's powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's a two-hour interview, and it, she talks about every, they talk about everything they under talk the about sun. Everything. Let me say that, that 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 interview is getting millions of copies from this current generation, because mm-hmm. it speaks to them in a mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it speaks to them where they are. She's questioning. Um, Authority. She's, you know, mm-hmm. challenging her patriarchy. elder. Yeah, patriarchy. Toxic masculinity. That too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a checklist. Yeah. You guys keep talking. There's something happening here. I don't know what's yeah, going on. Really it's behind the very stuff. enjoyable. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to get some popcorn. Yeah. And just, I'm just going to sit and keep watching. <laughs> but, it's, but it's also no. a complicated question. Because yeah. uh, Baldwin asked her, ask her to forgive her husband and his, I mean, her, 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 her father. father. Yeah. yeah. And so, for your audience, we don't want to give away anything. Mm-hmm. Nikki's Nikki, journey journey in life is informed by her relationship with her dad. That's with power of any sort, mm-hmm. and uh, she determined at an early age she wasn't going to take it anymore. I, also, I think it's also an example, the James Baldwin and, and Nikki Giovanni conversation of how intergenerational, healthy intergenerational dialogue can happen. Mm. You know, he allowed her to challenge him, you mm. know, and then and in his you know nuggets of wisdom, we sort of pulled as well as a way of also him sharing 
you know, his experience with her. And it was just, it's just a treasure. In terms of the structure, you know, we, we actually approached the film um, as a, a buckets of stanzas. You know, and in those stanzas, the foundations were, you know, excerpts from the Going to Mars poem and the conversations with her and uh, James Baldwin. And then we sort of played with what would go first or second. But it was all, they, they were always the emotional nuggets of the Going to Mars poem and their conversation. You know, I've said this once one, to one other filmmaker that we've talked to uh, uh, this year um, that I said, I cannot wait until the film is released, has its run. He has this Blu-ray release, so I can put that Blu-ray in my library because I want it there. This is the second time I'm going to say that. Uh -huh. I cannot wait to, to get the Blu-ray, and I'm going to send it to you so you guys can sign it. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just love this film. So I'm, I, I know we only, only have a few minutes, but, but I really want to thank you and your audience. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we made this film, American Promise, right? Mm -hmm. And what we learned when we took that film on the road is that we needed to build audience mm -hmm. and we need to respect the audience. And so I hope your audience comes to see this film saying that we care for them. And this is a love poem mm -hmm. to them. And I think we, we, the work that we do, we try to inspire people to radically rethink their positions with what? This earth? <laughs> Authority? Yes, and all of so, that. So we, we thank you for giving us this platform yes thank you thank you very much our pleasure we are thrilled to death you. to give you that platform yeah. mm -hmm. absolutely again the film is going to mars the nikki giovanni project which is screening at sundance we've been talking to michelle stevenson and joe brewster thank you so much for being on the show thank you peace thanks for joining us on today's show you can find more information about this episode in our show notes if you're missing us, you can visit us at bitchtalkpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter and buy us a cup of coffee. Did you know we're also on the radio? You can find us at bff.fm. And lastly, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Only the coolest bitches are doing it. is a proud member of the BFF.FM podcast network. Learn more at podcasts.bff.fm. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever.